From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show on this Monday morning. Hope you are having a great one. We will be chatting later on to Dear South Africa, finding out what is going on in Parliament. But our first guest for the day is Thomas Grant. He is a practicing barrister and a visiting professor of politics and law at Gresham College and a regular writer on legal topics. And he's just written a new book called The Mandela Brief, Sydney Kentridge and the Trials of Apartheid, about Sydney Kentridge, a famous South African lawyer who really focused a lot of his early work and later work, actually, on trials that came to affect uh, the, the the history and the course of South Africa in terms of its political trajectory, including uh, the, the treason trial, uh, trials to do with Mandela, Steve Biko, Sharpeville Massacre, really uh, a towering figure in the history of South African jurisprudence, and to have the opportunity to talk to someone like Thomas who's flown all the way out from England to be with us in studio is a real real pleasure Thomas thank you so much for joining us welcome to the new blue review thank you very much Benji it's great to have you it's great to have to be here <laughs> sometimes it is good to have me but definitely better to have you <laughs> so you know Thomas I I'm, I'm interested why you decided to to write a book like this is the the early trials and the lawyers who did a lot of work in the anti-apartheid struggle are fairly well covered uh, it is something we know about and and, of course, people like Kentridge are enormously well-respected. So what were you trying to bring to the public that perhaps we hadn't seen before uh, with this new book? Well, I will immediately tell you, Benji, that until about four years ago, I was not a great expert on your country. Um, I am an English, as you say, an English barrister, and um, I've spent most of my life practicing law in England and writing about English law, not South African law. I happened to come across a mutual friend of mine and Sydney's uh, famous English KC called Edwin Glasgow, who knew that I had written a book about another centenarian barrister in England. I'm a specialist in centenarian barristers. It's a, it's a small field. Um, <laughs> but j- just to point out that uh, the centenarian Sydney Kentridge uh, is still alive. He's 100 years old. Sydney or will be. Sydney will be uh, turning 100 on the 5th of November 2022. Sure. So wow. he will be a centenarian in, in a very short period of time. Um, so this gentleman, Edwin Glasgow, said Sydney's now 96, uh, and he's got a lot of wonderful memories and a lot of uh, incredible stories uh, and experiences to tell and ha- had a seismic impact, as you say, Benji, rightly, on the course of South African history and jurisprudence and he really deserves a book. And you say there are a lot of books about South African advocates, and you're right. And, I mean, people like George Bezos wrote his memoirs, a very long and interesting memoir, Arthur Chaskelson. Uh, there's a very long biography of Arthur Chaskelson. There was no book about Sydney, although lots of books which referred to him. And I thought, having looked into it, having obtained, crucially, Sydney's permission... He's a very modest man. He's, he, 
his original response when I approached him with, with Edwin with the idea for a book was, look, nobody's interested in my life. Why would anyone want to read a book about me? And we had to spend a lot of time <laughs> persuading him that he was being very, very silly and far too modest. And eventually he was overcome by our own advocacy towards him. And I thought, although you're right to say there are a lot of books about a lot of great South African lawyers, none cover directly Sydney's work. And I thought there was a body of work there uh, and, a, and a, a, a reputation and a towering reputation which deserved to be brought together under one, under one title between two covers. And I, th I think, I mean, there's obviously for others to say whether I'm right or wrong, but I think when, having done the research, um, having read an awful lot of books, having interviewed an awful lot of people, I think um, whether I've done it right or wrong, the subject justified a book in his in his own right, and it's a book. It's a celebratory book. It's not a it's not a biography in the strict sense of the term. It's not a warts and all biography. It's a celebration of a great man on his hundredth birthday, and it's a celebration of advocacy and the power of advocacy. One thing they do say about Sidney Kentridge in South Africa, and certainly we say that in England, where he subsequently came to practice, is that he was one of, if not the greatest, advocate in South Africa in the 1970s and 1980s. Yeah, absolutely. It struck me when I told someone that I was going to be doing a, an interview on on Kentridge for the radio show, as they said to me, oh, that's so nice. I've got one of his artworks. And, of course, you know, there was a confusion <laughs> between Sydney and his son, William. And what struck me reading the book is that actually that goes back even further. Um, uh, Sydney's father, Morris, uh, was a, a very famous uh, South African involved in po in politics. Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, with the Jewish community as well. And, and, and the Kentridges have achieved something which is, I think, fairly rare in South Africa. They've created a kind of a dynasty, uh, which... Which is uh, goes back really uh, nearly, uh, I guess, a hundred years or something like that. So, yes. perhaps if you could just give us a, a bit of a, a sketch about what was the life of Sydney like just when he was growing up that that sort of maybe caused him to go into law and and created the sort of very specific outlook that he needed to engage in some of these anti-apartheid cases that he eventually would do so. Thanks, Benji. Look, he going back a few more decades than that, his. Uh, family, his, gra his grandfather had been a cantor at a synagogue in what is now modern-day Lithuania and left Lithuania to go to, originally to go to Sunderland in England. Strange place to go from my point of view, um, but I'm a southerner. Um, went to Sunderland, spent, spent a, a number of years as a cantor in a synagogue in Sunderland. And then at the turn of the 20th, 20th 19th and 20th century, uh, the Kantrovich family, as it was then, moved to, took a, took a, a ship to Durban and started working, uh, uh, in Durban and then came to Johannesburg. And as you say, Morris, um, was a, in, a very famous po politician and lawyer in his day, started off in the Labour Party, moved to the United Party, was a, I think was the father of the house and since he was the longest serving parliamentarian, uh, by the, by the 19, by the 1950s. Um, Sydney obviously therefore was brought up in a very political household. The, the family talking all, an awful lot about the politics of the day. Sydney remembers going to a, a smuts 
um, Smart's rally in 1938. I mean, it's extraordinary thought to, to have a memory when you're, he was 16 at the time of seeing, uh, seeing this, this great figure of, this great political figure of the time, um, uh, speaking and having a political rally. Uh, I think Sidney, he came, he became a lawyer, um, he was called to the bar in 1949, having done a degree at Wits University, having fought in the war. I mean, he spent five years, four or five years, in the South African Air Force, I mean, and genuinely in the South African Air Force, I, he was in Kenya for a while, he then went up to Egypt, to Libya, he, were, he, he landed in Sicily on D-Day plus three in 1943 on the, in relation to the Sicily landings, he then pushed up, uh, pu- pushed up um, Italy and was, on VE Day, was in northern, in northern Italy, he then went and did a degree in Oxford, uh, another degree in jurisprudence and was called to the bar in 1949, and, you know, from an early from an early stage of his practice, he was devoting a good deal of his politi- of his legal life to acting, doing what we would now describe, I suppose, as human rights law. And I think, I think what one finds in that period in the 1950s is that there were a lot of famous Jewish uh, uh, advocates. Uh, uh, the obvious other example is Izzy Mazels, who I'm sure your listeners will, will, will remember, um, who were, whose families had Fled, or fled is perhaps not the right right word, but who'd who'd left Eastern Europe, which was obviously a notoriously anti-Semitic place at the time, mm-hmm. had fled to a new country, fleeing one form of oppression, and they found themselves facing a different form of oppression. They themselves not suffering it, but they wanting to actually to counter it, and hence Mazels and Kentridge plus a, a lot of others, yeah, were really um, yeah. you know, fighting against the apartheid regime. Using, using the legal system. It's so interesting what you say about uh, the idea of what we would now call human rights law, you know, and, and no disrespect to my friends who are human rights lawyers maybe listening to this program, but sometimes when you think about human rights lawyers, you know, maybe it's someone with pink hair working for an NGO that did their, <laughs> did their bit at the, uh, at, at, the, at the constitutional court. But yes. Sydney and the people who you're talking about were not those kind of people. They were dyed-in-the-wool commercial lawyers often who were doing a lot of work like this and then sort of almost created this new form of law by then using that status to, to oppose the state. You're quite right, Benji. The, the concept of the human rights law in, in the 1950s and 1960s was not one that I don't think Sidney would have recognized. And he certainly didn't dye his hair, his hair pink. He, when you see him going into court, he looks, he's dressed very formally in his suit and his gown and, and, and his, and his bands. And yeah, he was a liberal. I mean, he was a, he was a, he was a member of the Liberal Party, which, uh, which disbanded itself, as you, as your listeners will know, in, in the, in the late sixties, when it, it became illegal for there to be cro- uh, cross-racial political parties. He, um, do you say have described himself as a human rights lawyer? He described himself as a man whose primary concern was the rule of law and the preservation of justice. And when he went into the courtroom, he was not a political lawyer. He wasn't using the courtroom as a vehicle or a platform to make political speeches. As far as he was concerned, the most important thing was to using the system, acting within the confines of the court pro- pro- process and the court, court structure to achieve results for his clients. Because frankly, his clients did not want political speeches from him. They wanted to be acquitted. Mm-hmm. And if they weren't going to be acquitted, they didn't want to be sentenced to death or sentenced to many years in prison. And that's what he conceived his role to be. And I think his clients were dead happy that he did so. And he achieved, uh, as I've tried to chronicle in the book, 
in the face of where the odds were stacked very much against the accused uh, in 1950s, 60s, 70s South Africa, some astonishing acquittals. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, mean, I just to stay on this point briefly, it's it's interesting for me that that we've had this kind of split off from, between seemingly maybe I'm not a lawyer, but seemingly there has been this kind of specialization within the legal field where people become advocates and then specialize very quickly in whatever ever it is. And it, but it actually seems to me that this was an advantage. Uh, that 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 they had that wouldn't even have been allowed today. You know, if you or one day were were representing a big mining company and the next day doing uh, something basically on on the rights of miners, and it's not something that I think people would be very comfortable with. But these guys were able to use that context almost to their advantage because they they brought a certain kind of uh, respectability, if you like, to to the courtroom that this that this wasn't. That, that this was a serious issue that the world was, was only starting to wake up to at that point. Benji, you're quite right. Nowadays, uh, in the main, advocates, whether they're in England or South Africa, specialize early. They do insurance law or they do me- medical law. Back in the 1950s, uh, at, the, at the start of uh, Sydney's practice, he having been called to the bar in 1949, there were, I think, about 100 or 110 advocates in the entirety of Johannesburg. Of course, there were other advocates in Cape Town and and Mm -hmm. Pretoria, etc. But it was a very small bar. And Sidney, as did most of his other colleagues at the bar, was a a generalist. One day he would be doing a case about somebody being run down by a car, personal injury case. The next day he might be doing a a mining case, as you say. The next day a commercial case. And the, the, the day after he might be doing a murder case. And so he did a lot of crime, he did a lot of commercial work, and he remained a, a great commercial lawyer. And I don't cover his commercial work because I think it's probably less of interest to the to the gen, to the general reader. But he, but but what it I think led to, as I think you mentioned, Benji, is that he became a great advocate. And you learn advocacy by advocating in all sorts of fields. I think it was a great education for him. Um, and when he was doing the treason trial and when he was doing the other cases that I refer to in the book, he wasn't just doing criminal cases. He was doing commercial cases as well. Um, and, and I think it, I think that brought richness to his advocacy and let, meant that he could draw upon a whole well of experience to bring to bear to the courtroom. We're talking to Thomas Grant. He's a practicing barrister and visiting professor of politics and law at Gresham College wrote and written a book called The Mandela Brief, Sydney Kentridge and the Trials of Apartheid. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I am Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman and we are talking today to Thomas Grant who's just written a book called The Mandela Brief, Sydney Kentridge and the Trials of Apartheid. Let's talk about some of those trials now, Thomas, because uh, they are obviously the the meat and potatoes of the book. And what struck me and what I think we sometimes need reminding of, especially in South Africa today, is just quite how apartheid was this interesting mix of being a dictatorship that wanted to sort of pretend like it had a legal backing and how these lawyers that were defending 
trialists could then use that as a way of getting their clients acquitted. Uh, the, the, the one that I think springs to mind as being the most embarrassing in the book, if you were a, a state person at the time, is the treason trial, where they basically got over a 100, uh, more than that, uh, people arraigned for supposedly terrorist or uh, activities or uh, communism, basically, as they, as they call it at the time. And and the lawyers were really able to use the legal process to get a massive acquittal uh, for what was, at the time, the biggest trial in almost South African history. Benji, quite right. Absolutely right. The, um, the, the South African... South Africa had, over many decades before the National Party came to power, you know, a great international reputation uh, for its judges, for its jurisprudence... And when the National Party came to power in 1948, that didn't just die, that didn't just wither. The ju- there were many judges in place who had you know, great respect for what we might describe as the rule of law. Now, the National Party itself itself purported to have a great respect for the rule of law, and it, and it legislated left, right and centre to enact its, um, its, its malign programme. Um, but it did insist upon and accept the principle that there was that the, the judiciary was above everything and that you couldn't override judicial decision making. And as you say, it brought this extraordinary prosecution in, in the late 1950s with a view to cutting off the uh, in one in one fell swoop, the anti-apartheid opposition that was coalescing at the time around the ANC and with great figures like Mandela uh, spear, spearheading it. And it was a an attempt to effectively neutralize opposition to its to its program. Um, it, it brought a prosecution, as you say, of 156 people with all the great names of the of the anti-apartheid movement included within it. And that came to a came to a trial in actually the old synagogue in, in Pretoria, Pretoria yeah. um, where Sidney and his and his co uh, his 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 co-counsel, including Maisels and 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 Bram Fisher and, and 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 a number of others, spent literally three years uh, defending Mandela, Sisulu, and others. Um, and as you rightly say, Benji, at the end of the process, after the prosecution had called over 200 prosecution witnesses, achieved acquittals. And you might think, how could that be? The three judges, it was a three-judge panel, specially convened to hear this supposed treason trial. And these judges were obviously all white, obviously male, uh, had two, two of them had close associations with the National Party. They were not obvious candidates for acquitting these accused. Yeah. But having heard the evidence over a period of three years, that evidence having been tested by rigorous cross-examination, conducted by Maisels, conducted by Kentridge and others, and Kentridge was, the I, I, I suggest in the book, the absolute engine room of the defence. These three judges felt duty-bound, in accordance with their judicial oath, to acquit all the remaining defendants. And, I mean, in one sense, a remarkable achievement, and another sense, an, in, an insight into the continued concept or the, the, the survival of the concept of the rule of law amongst the judiciary. And when they were acquitted in 1961, um, so we're well into the, uh, the apartheid era. And it was a, a, great, a great victory for Sydney, a great victory actually for Mandela, 
um, and all his all his co-accused. And I think it was a uh, it's a it's a case that has gone down in the annals of history as a you know, a real morale booster for the for the for the for the opposition. What was really interesting is how the case was also used to actually buttress the rule of law. You, you go in at one stage where uh, the the state passes a bunch of legislation in the middle of the trial that would effectively incriminate anyone who was coming to the defense of the accused. And at that point, the, the lawyers in, in the, Sydney and the, in, in the group say, look, you can't, we, we're not prepared to be involved in a legal process where, where, uh, you're putting at risk people who are witnesses. It would go against yes. how yes. the basics of, of courtroom, call it etiquette or whatever, uh, would, would, would be. And so they leave. And, and Dumenokwe and Nelson Mandela actually then do the trial themselves. And it, it so shakes the, the, the system that they have to go back and, and repass some of those laws so that the trial can, yeah. uh, go on, uh, unimpeded. Thanks, thanks for raising that. It's a really, it's a really fascinating episode in the, in the case. And, and one, re- the trial was started in September 1958 and carried on. And then March, 1960. So during the middle of the trial, just as, just as the defense have started leading their own witnesses, there's the Sharpeville massacre takes place and mm-hmm. a state of emergency is, is declared. All the, all the accused who had, although they'd been charged with treason, which carried with it a, a, a death sentence, if, um, potential death sentence, if they were convicted, they were all actually on bail at the time, rather remarkably. But after the state of emergency is declared, they're all arrested under the state of emer- emergency provisions. So Mandela, Nockway and all the other, um, co- all the other accused are now found, find themselves in, 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 back in, back in prison. The, as you rightly say, there are a bunch of regulations passed, a bunch of, uh, uh, of, ministerial directions which effectively say that if you uh, utter any words at all whether or not in a courtroom which uh, so to speak seek to undermine the state then you are committing a criminal offense and Kentridge says to the to the judges as you mentioned this would effectively stymie our ability to defend ourselves because no witness could go into the witness box and explain themselves because they would be at risk of criminalizing themselves in the witness box itself. And the judges were sympathetic to that. And as a result of that submission, is one of the points I make, rarely has a, a, the submission of an advocate in a courtroom altered the law so quickly. So in order to, obviously the prosecution and the state was dead keen to continue with the prosecution. So they then altered the law so as to give immunity to any words spoken uh, from the from the witness box, and the trial then restarted af- after a, a, cup, a couple of weeks or a few a few a few weeks, albeit for a period of time, as you say, Mandela and Nokwe being the only lo- the, the two lawyers amongst the co-accused conducted the defence themselves, and they were conducting that defence effectively from a prison cell. They would they would be carried from prison where they were kept in the most atrocious conditions. I think Nelson Mandela was kept in a in a cell with. Ten people and with just one hole in the middle of the of the of the room by way of lavatory, and he was at the same time being carted to court every day on trial for his life okay. let 's talk about Sharfel for a moment because I think most listeners will be familiar with uh, at least the rudimentaries of Sharfel they 'll know about the massacre and what happened yeah. uh, and and what I wanted to do was 
not focus on that because what was interesting for me is that in some respects Kentridge's contribution to the issue of Shuffle was almost non-legal because he, he, he decided to appear at a commission of inquiry that looking into, into Sharpville, which yes. was almost sort of guaranteed to be a sham from the beginning. And yet he decided to participate anyway, because not for the legal, uh, likelihood, but because he believed that it was important to get an official version on that wasn't the state. And then in, and then I think a story which maybe people are less, um, familiar with is that later on, he had to plead for another group from Sharp, uh, uh, Sharpville who were also up for the, the death penalty and very likely would have uh, gotten it. Uh, and if it hadn't been for his very effective um, advocacy, not in a legal sense, yes. it was because of the way that he conducted himself that they ended up getting a reprieve because of uh, world opinion and, and the the political pressure which he was able to bring to bear, which in the end had nothing to do with a, a legal case uh, before him. But Benji, yeah, absolutely. So starting with the first Sharpville, very briefly, the the year 1960 in, obviously was a seismic year in South African history and a tragic year, um, and a, but a, a very busy year for, for Sydney as a lawyer because he was in the, in the old synagogue day in, day out, defending the treason trialists. The massacre takes place in March 1960. The, the, there's a decision made between Kentridge and Mandela that it would be in the interest of the trial of the trialists to effectively disinstruct their lawyers as a, a political act. So, as you mentioned, uh, Sidney and Izzy Meisels and the rest of the legal team process out of court. And from, from, for a period of time, uh, Nelson Mandela and Duma Nokwe conduct the defense uh, themselves of the, tri- of the trialist. Sidney now is freed up time-wise and a as you say, an inquiry is, is instituted very quickly after the massacre in, in response to the world opinion and the outrage that the world uh, was expressing. And this was with a view to trying to whitewash the actions of the police officers at Sharpville Police Station, undoubtedly. And a judge is appointed uh, uh, to, to over, over, oversee the, the inquiry. And Sydney is, is retained to act for the Bishop of Johannesburg, who at the time was a a very great figure who uh, uh, was a very oppositional to apartheid, an Englishman actually. And um, so Sydney is retained by the Bishop of Johannesburg to represent the interests of the victims, so to speak, and to challenge the version of events that is going to be given by the very many witnesses who are called, who were within the police station, who are effectively police police officers, um, of which there were very many who gave evidence. Now, you rightly say that his work then is almost extra legal because there was very little hope of the commission of inquiry delivering a, a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a verdict so to speak but it was a report a report which incriminated in any way the the the, the police officers who, who fired the sten guns and the and the and the rifles that killed so many people and injured so many people the outcome was less important than the process. And what we find, and it's relayed day in, day out in the newspapers, is Sidney and his, and, uh, his co-counsel, he's the main counsel acting, his, the main advocate acting, is challenging the versions of events being given by the dozens of police officers who come to give exculpatory evidence and, and 
Sydney's achievement in the, the, the Sharpville inquiry is not in the result, but it's in the process and it's in revealing through his cross-examination to the world the mendacity of the police officers giving evidence and effectively trying to worm his way into the, the truth of the matter. And he does it very effectively. Um, and as a result of that, the, 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 the historical memory of, of Sharpville has not been skewed by the false evidence being given by the police officers. And you then mention that 25 years later, long, more than 25 years later, Sydney is re-involved in a Sharpville case, this time for the Sharpville Six, six people who had been wrongly convicted of complicity in, in, in a murder. <clears throat> Sydney is now by, now by this stage practicing mainly in, in London. He flies back to represent them in the final court of appeal. They have been already found guilty and, and sentenced to death. He comes back. World opinion is, or the, the world's press is watching in on him. It's a it's a hearing which is covered across the world. He 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 delivers this submission. The legal context is very complicated. I, I won't go into it. He delivers this submission on behalf of the the so-called Sharpville Six. He loses the case, but the the sort of moral force of his advocacy reawakens the world's outrage and the government realizes it would be politically impossible for them to carry through the death penalty and they and the death penalty is not carried out and then the apartheid government falls and they are then reprieved a few years later but that is an extraordinary story and it, i mean it's rarely that a legal case gives rise to un resolutions this this one gave rise to two un resolutions condemning the trial and condemning the um the, the convictions and the sentences. Thomas, there's all sorts of things I would uh, still love to ask you about his English cases and the, uh, his family and freedom of speech issues with, to do with the media, but uh, uh, it looks like we're a little bit out of time. So if you want to listen to any of that or any of the bits and pieces that we've spoken about, it is a, a, a good read, very accessible, and you can cover uh, some of the great, really, the trials of apartheid that that existed. We haven't even got to the Mandela bit. No. Uh, <laughs> but we don't, uh, the, the key point, Benji, which I want to say, you don't need to be a lawyer. It's, no. not, it's a book written not for lawyers. Yes, absolutely. And I can attest to that having done exactly six months of commercial law at university 15 years ago uh, and was very accessible and able to um, do it. So that is uh, the Mandela Brief, Sydney Kentridge and the Trials of Apartheid. It's published by John Murray Press and available, I'm sure, at all good bookshops online written by Thomas Grant, who uh, has joined us in the studio. Thomas, thank you so much. Enjoy your rest of time in South Africa. Benji, thank you so much for having me. And please come again soon and write something else. We have many, uh, many South Africans you can write about. Thank you so much. I'm Benji Shulman. This is 101.9 High FM.